There are two readings this morning. The first is from the Old Testament, right at the beginning. We're reading from Genesis chapter 1, starting at verse 1, on page 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky. And there was evening and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seeds in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And our second reading is from the New Testament, 1 Timothy 4, and can be found on page 1194. And we're reading from verse 1. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Well, it is uh, great to be uh, with you to talk on these themes. Uh, St. Matthew's will forever be a special place for me, and not just because I have so many friends uh, in the audience, uh, but also this is the place where just last year I said farewell in a funeral service to the woman who led me first to consider the Christian faith. In fact, I stood right here as I led that funeral. Glenda Weldon was my scripture teacher at Mossman High School, and I suppose it was her amazing 
clarity of expression and generosity of spirit, combined with the hamburgers, milkshakes and scones, that uh, put me in a kind of headspace to consider Christianity without all the preconceptions and baggage that so often cloud our judgment about these things. So it's great to be here, and I can only hope that in our three weeks together, I can give something of that headspace to all of us, whether long-term believer or complete doubter about the Christian faith. But first... um, a lame dad joke, if you don't mind, that uh, at least illustrates what I want to try and do over these weeks, uh, even if it is lame. Uh, Four people in a plane that lost power to its engines, and the uh, pilot came out to the three passengers and said, look, we're going down, it's my plane. There are only three parachutes, my parachutes too. And he uh, says, uh, I've got to take one of them. He straps it on, jumps out to safety. Left on the plane were a brilliant professor, a minister of religion, and a backpacker, just making her way around the world. And the professor said, look, I'm one of the greatest minds on the planet. I have to survive. I must take a parachute. And they thought that seemed pretty wise. He strapped it on, jumped out. The minister started to say to the backpacker, look, I've lived a long life. I know where I'm going when I die. You take the last parachute. And she stopped him and she said, no, it's okay. That brilliant professor, he just jumped out with my backpack strapped on. (laughs) Okay. Thank you for laughing and for the visitor. I tell you that because it illustrates something that I think is really important. It's possible to assume you have the real thing when in fact you have a poor substitute. That's a real problem jumping out of an aircraft with nothing but a PhD and a backpack, but it's also a problem when it comes to things like the Christian faith. It's possible to assume you've embraced genuine Christianity, but on closer inspection you realize maybe you just created a version of it, a substitute. Equally, I find this increasingly, uh, that there are people who have rejected what they assumed was real Christianity. They're living with a version of Christianity in their head that isn't quite the real thing, but they've rejected it and they think it's the real thing. And yet, on closer inspection, they realize, hang on, I rejected a poor substitute. So, what I want to do in our time together over these three weeks is what you might call a safety check. Let's just call it a reality check uh, to make sure it's a parachute, uh, not a backpack. Um, And as soon as I say that, and as soon as you see the title of the talks, you're going to be thinking, if you're a thoughtful doubter, uh, which version of Christianity? As Bruce said, there are, you know, there's Catholics and Anglicans and Baptists and Pentecostals and all this. Um, So, which version? I've had many people over the years say to me, you Christians can't even work out what you agree on. Why should I take any notice? Come back when you agree on something, and then we'll listen. In fact, this was thrown at me in an online debate uh, a little while ago. Um, I have plenty of atheist friends on my uh, social media, and uh, this one guy, Andrew, uh, took the opportunity to say, you treat your faith as some sort of monolith. How about those of your tradition who do not agree with your doctrines? The fact is, every Christian has a version of that faith. Now, I've got to acknowledge there's something to the criticism. The differences between the denominations are real, but as I tried to point out to my atheist friend, 
There is, in fact, a way to summarize the Christian faith that all Christians, at least in theory, agree on. There is an 83-word summary statement, 83 in the original language, that was composed originating from the century immediately after the New Testament and believed today to be the core of the Christian faith. It's called the Apostles' Creed, and we said it earlier, and it's not only believed by Anglicans and Baptists and so on, but also Hillsong have got in on the act, and a couple of years ago uh, started saying the Apostles' Creed, and even wrote a very cool song based on the Apostles' Creed, which I have no idea how, but it went to number one in Indonesia. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints and the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Give me Burundi Dave any day of the week, but that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. It's true that Christians have disagreed on stuff through the years, not denying that. But there is an 83-word summary of the Christian faith that takes us to the very core, and it's a pretty significant core. The Apostles' Creed speaks to us of the reality of God, the history of Jesus, and the life of of the Spirit. And over these three weeks, I'm going to take each in turn, beginning with the first one, the reality of God. That opening line of the Apostles' Creed, agreed upon by all Christians, simply says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Now, as soon as you hear those words, of course, you're thinking this reminds us of the opening line of the Bible, also just read to us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Heaven and earth just means everything. In the modern world, we might say the universe. God created the universe. Now, I know that might sound like theology 101, but I want to try and convince us in our time together that this is philosophical dynamite and a practical revolution in our lives. For starters, philosophically speaking, it means God is not part of the creation. If He is the maker of heaven and earth, He ain't in heaven and earth. He's not part of it. By definition, the ultimate source of time and space cannot be part of time and space. That's just a logical statement. Therefore, God is the uncreated creator. It would be a mistake to think of God as like the fairies at the bottom of the garden, which is how Richard Dawkins, the world's most famous atheist, describes God. Or even like the ancient gods of Zeus or Thor, who are actually part of the creation, not the source of creation. Nor is God to be thought of like uh, Santa Claus. On Q&A, Cindy Pan, a doctor no less, described God as like believing in Santa Claus. She said, there are many people who believe in the Tooth Fairy and Santa Claus, that they're real. With God, there are people who believe He is real. There are people who believe He is not real. It's, you know, Tooth Fairy, 
Santa Claus, God. But actually, if the Tooth Fairy and Santa Claus are real, like Thor or Zeus or the fairies at the bottom of the garden, if they're real, they're part of creation. They're part of this world. They're not the source of the world. By definition, God, as thought of by Christians, is the source of all things, not part of the things in our world. It's a point put, I think, really well by an intellectual atheist in Britain who became a Christian uh, recently. He would say almost accidentally. He was thriving as an intellectual lefty atheist and he lost faith in atheism and wound up a boring Anglican. And uh, he wrote this in his book, Unapologetic, which is his statement of why he's unapologetic about having become a Christian. When people who believe in God talk about God, we don't mean that a being exists who is an animal like ourselves, only bigger and cleverer and more complex. We don't think he lives in the universe. In fact, we don't think he exists in any environment. We don't imagine that he had to grow or evolve or appear or emerge thanks to some process or another. It's the other way up. We think that all processes exist thanks to him. We think he is the universe's environment. We may well be wrong. Crazed, doolally, traveling first class on the Delusion Express. But showing that God the evolved organism is unlikely, as Richard Dawkins argues, says nothing about the probability of the different thing we do in fact believe. Arguing with people imposes an unfortunate necessity to find out what they think before you open your big mouth to contradict it. Now, I wouldn't be so rude this morning, he's actually critiquing the new atheism, but he's got a point. It would be a mistake to think of God as if God is like a magic wardrobe hiding in the house somewhere, and if you open enough doors, look in the attic, maybe the basement, you'll find the magic wardrobe. Maybe Thor is like that, maybe Santa Claus is like that, but not God. God is more like the architect of the house. You don't expect to find the architect in the attic, but everything about the house points to the architect. And in the same way, it would make no sense to search through the house of creation, opening every door, looking down every hallway, and then declaring the absence of the wardrobe, all the while missing the more obvious point, that you're in a house in the first place, with doors and windows, and hallways, and rooms, and furniture. The logic of God can be explained very simply, and yet taken down to the deepest level of complexity you can imagine. Our universe operates according to exquisitely rational laws that have, in the course of time, given rise to rational minds that are able to discern those rational laws. Now, to believe that is an accident is akin to believing that it's magic. It just happened. But to believe that this outcome is intentional, the work of an eternal mind, 
is to insist that rationality goes all the way down and all the way out, that rationality is basic to the universe and explains everything. I know that sounds overly philosophical and three people will have liked that this morning. But it creates a practical revolution. And I want to try and show you how. If this is true, it means creation is a gift. If everything has come from God the Father, God is not part of creation, but He has created it out of His own good mind. It means physical matter is good. It's a gift. And this changes everything. I think we assume in the modern world that everyone has always thought that creation is good, that matter and bodies and sex and food are good. But actually, this was not always so. In the ancient world in which the Bible was written, it was far more common to think of physical creation, the body and rivers and stars, as spooky, accidental, capricious, dangerous, in need of placating, pleasing the forces behind everything in order to manage living in the world. This is certainly true of the most famous creation story at the time uh, Genesis was written. The Enuma Elish was the Babylonian creation story. And in Enuma Elish, all of the physical world is the accidental wreckage of a war of the gods. And when you read Enuma Elish, you knew it was saying that physical creation, each other, are accidents. I'm just reading a book, almost finished, uh, on the Druids. Um, it always frustrated me. I never knew anything about the Druids. So I've been reading this amazing book um, where it, it describes those ancient Druids uh, from, the, from the Celts of uh, both England, Ireland, and uh, in France... And one of the key things that we can tell the Druids believe is that everything in heaven and earth was spooky and you had to have special sacrifices and rituals just to navigate the rivers and the ponds and the rocks and the trees and the stars. So whether in the east in, say, Babylon or the west among the Druids, this idea that creation is capricious and accidental pervaded. To which the Bible says, mm -mm, everything's good. Everything's good. Uh, here's the passage that was read to us earlier. And you, you notice that um, it repeats the word good over and over and over. Right? So, uh, God makes the light and it was good. He gathered the seas and the land and it's good. And the veggies and they're good. And everything's good, 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 good. And they see right down the bottom, just for the really slow people in the ancient audience, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. I mean, if you miss that, come on. But this is saying to a world that thought physical creation was scary and accidental and capricious and you don't know what's going to happen next, it's saying, no, 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 it has all come from a good mind. It's good. In fact, the Western practice of calling material goods, goods, comes from this biblical doctrine. The Apostle Paul, in the New Testament passage read to us, says the same thing, obviously reflecting on Genesis 1, he says, for everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, because it's a gift. And I believe this perspective 
challenges not only the ancient paganism of Babylon or the Druids, but also modern atheism. Because not even the Druids or the Babylonians had as low a view of the physical universe as Richard Dawkins described in his book, River Out of Eden, a Darwinian view of life, in which he remarks, the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. It's in this context that the Apostles' Creed tried to frame our statement of faith to say, no, 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 creation is a gift. It comes from a Father. It is a gift of love. Now, I should probably pause here and say, I know there'll be people here, as there were at the 8 a.m. service, who have experienced the sadness of this creation. And I want to acknowledge that. I don't want to just go on and on about how good everything is as if we're in fairyland. But I would point out that, that what makes the sadnesses of this creation so sad is precisely that we recognize it is a departure from the good we expect of this world. We live in this world not expecting everything to go wrong, but for there to be a basic rightness and goodness and orderliness. And when things go astray... We cry out as we should. And I'll say more about that in the coming weeks. But my point for now is that if this basic idea is true, that everything has come from the hand of a father, it means physical life is brimming with extra significance. Stuff isn't just stuff. It's a gift of love. It's a bit like this wedding ring. Um, my wife, Buff, who, who's here, uh, assures me it's made of gold, or at least there's some gold in it. I can't remember. Uh, so I suppose that means I could find a shop uh, down here in Manly that would be willing to give me, I don't know, a couple hundred bucks for it. Sorry, darling, I, I, I have no idea, right? But it's worth something because it's gold. But of course, there's no way this ring is worth only the value of its material gold. This ring, though a physical object, is brimming with the significance of a gift of love. I get the matter and form plus the significance of a gift of love. And what I'm saying is that when you come to believe that God is the creator of heaven and earth, it allows you to walk in this earth with thanksgiving for all the good things of creation. Perhaps a better analogy would be this. On my mantelpiece is this fine-looking wooden carving from India. It's the famous see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil, wise monkeys. And you might say, why is that on your mantelpiece? Well, I quite like it, and I suspect that if we got a little auction going here, uh, I could, you know, probably get 10 bucks, 50 bucks, Clarky, do you reckon? Oh, okay, if we go to Clarkey, uh, maybe if I go to eBay, right? I mean, it's, it's handcrafted. It's so, surely got value. Except, 
It's more than matter and form to me. This was a gift from my father on one of his many trips to India just before he died there. This sits on my mantelpiece and I value it as precious not simply because of the wood, not the matter, not the form, but for me this is a gift of love, a gift of the Father. Physical objects are brimming with significance, charged with additional meaning. To say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, is to see all of material life, food, body, sex, the beach, each other, as brimming with significance. Imagine living in the world, valuing stuff, but seeing in stuff the gift of love. It animates all of life. Which, of course, has a logical corollary that is a little bit challenging. Because if everything is a gift of love, it means it's possible to mistreat the gifts and so offend the giver. I know this is perhaps a little depressing uh, to talk about here in Manly on a beautiful morning. But I suspect most Aussies think that the thing that offends God, the Creator, most are the vices some people get up to. Usually the vices other people get up to, but, you know, it's the swearing, it's the illicit sex, it's the drinking too much. They're the really bad things. God really gets annoyed at those things. And I think this is so popular, partly because those of us who don't get up to too many vices console ourselves that we're the really good people. But I'd suggest, if there is a Creator who's fashioned all things, including ourselves, the primary offense can't be the vices. It must be knowing there's more to life than material reality, but settling for material reality all the same. Agreeing that there's something beyond, but just settling for here. Conceding that everything must originate from a grand mind, but then forgetting to thank the mind. To live in the light of that. The fundamental sin, if you don't mind me using that word, isn't vices. It's valuing the gifts above the giver. Relishing creation, ignoring the creator. And I'm not just speculating here, I'm borrowing Jesus' idea in the famous parable of the prodigal son, in which he likens a sinner, many of whom flocked to his messages, as a young son who goes up to his father one day and says, I want the inheritance that will be mine when you're dead, now. Would that be okay? 
and we're told by Jesus that the father distributes the property between the two sons, and this young son gathers all the wealth and heads off to a foreign country, and Jesus said, squandered the wealth on himself. And for Jesus, that is the picture of the sinner. And I, I just feel, this is an amazingly modern insight into what a sinner is. Someone who wants all of the goodies of the Father, and just not the Father. Relishing creation over the Creator, the gifts over the giver. Australians are world experts at this, of course, because... I mean, we live in such a beautiful land, it's a prosperous land. People on the North Shore are experts among the world experts. And remember, I'm knocking myself here, you know, I've traveled all of eight kilometers in my life from Mossman to Roseville. And if you don't mind my saying, I happen to know that people on the Northern Beaches are experts of the experts of the world experts at loving the gift. and forgetting to thank the giver, misusing the gift and not apologizing, or just being distracted by the gifts so that we don't think about the giver. I was invited to a party on a beautiful boat sailing around Pittwater some years ago. I was only invited because Buff, my wife, was invited. This was way above my cool grade. And about 30 or 40 of us putting around pit water as the sun went down. It was gorgeous. The wine was lovely. The pate, unpronounceable. The cheeses, smelly. It was, you know, you can, you can picture it, right? And I, I got chatting to a friend of Buff's who, who um, was just telling me how wonderfully things were going. Um, they just bought a property on the northern beaches, so she was feeling domestically secure. Uh, hubby had uh, just got a great big promotion, so uh, they were feeling financially secure. And the kids were about to start at school, so she was just brimming with this sense that everything was great in the world. And then, I, I kid you not, without any prompting from me, she just sort of looked off into the distance and said, John, but you know, sometimes I wonder if there's more to life. I don't know, some spiritual dimension I've never really tapped into. Now, of course, my eyes lit up at the turn in conversation. And I don't know if she saw that, <laughs> because as soon as she'd begun, she stopped. And she said, oh, but I'm not really that interested in it. Let's not talk about that. Want some more wine? I didn't have the quick wit to do anything but go, yes, please. But I came away thinking, that is classic Australian spirituality of distraction. By the gifts and forgetting the giver. It's just as well that according to Jesus, God is in the business of welcoming back such prodigals. Because in that famous prodigal son parable... Jesus says this young boy comes to his senses. And while he was still a long way off, his father, a picture of God, saw him, was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. God is in the business of welcoming back the prodigals. 
Well, from the beginning, Christianity, in all its forms, has said, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Which means that God is the uncreated creator, not an object to be discovered under a rock somewhere. That therefore creation is a gift and we can live our lives brimming with significance in this world. But also it raises the possibility that valuing the gift over the giver means that we can offend the giver. And next week, as we pivot to the second stanza of the Apostles' Creed, what we'll see is the amazing thing God, the Creator, has done to win back His prodigals. Let me pray. Dear God, we acknowledge you as our creator, the giver of all gifts, of life itself. Yet we know that we have not treated you as you deserve. We have been distracted. We've relished the gift instead of you, the giver. Here I am, a prodigal. Forgive me. Welcome me back. Fill my life with thanksgiving and awe and joy and meaning. In honor of you, our Creator and our loving Father. In Jesus' name, Amen.